3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Hello, hello. Welcome to Thursday Breakfast, 3CR, 8.55am. Good morning, Priya. Good morning, Leela. Good morning. Good morning, Inez and Priya. Um, before we before we do anything else, we should remind listeners, Radiothon is still going. So if you missed our Radiothon live show last week, I'm very sorry, but also we podcasted it. Um, and we are still working towards 3CR's target of $275,000. I think we are... Oh, Last I checked, we were about halfway there, uh, so we've got a long way to go, and we really appreciate all of your support to keep us independent and on air for another year. So you can donate by heading to 0394198377, that's 0394198377. Or you can go online to 3cr.org.au and donate um, via our website. Yeah, and uh, don't forget to nominate your favorite show when you donate, Thursday Breakfast. It'll go towards our tally as part of the broader fundraiser, but uh, yeah, every little helps, and anything over $2 is tax deductible. So maybe we should jump into our show rundown. Do you want to take it away, Leela? Yeah, so first up, we're going to hear some speeches from the Accessible Tram Stops for All Rally held on the 17th of June to launch the campaign to win accessible tram stops on Sydney Road before the proposed rail upgrades remove eight level crossings in Brunswick. We'll hear Monica Hart, Marybeth Councillor, who spoke to the history of transport campaigns in so-called Melbourne from 1980, including the upfield line closures, and honoured disability activists no longer with us today. We will also hear Elise Cunningham from the FOE Sustainable Cities Campaign, who shared campaign information and the importance of putting pressure on the government since only 15% of tram network network is accessible to wheelchair users. And then we'll hear from a very dear friend of mine, Angelica Ojanaka, who is a youth development advocate, researcher and speaker. She served as the 2022 Australian Youth Representative to the United Nations, as well as being involved in a number of projects and organisations. You can typically find her speaking, facilitating or shaping change on social inequalities experienced by children and young people, mental health, youth civic and economic participation and cultural rights on national and global forums. She joins us today to chat about the importance of investing in authentic youth voices and youth participation in mental health sectors. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'm really excited because it will link into our final interview, but you've got something else on as well. Yes, I do. Thank you for that segue. <laughs> segue, stopping now. <laughs> and then we are joined by 
Ruth Nood Rauch and Indil Ali. Ruth is a future reset project producer at Footscray Community Arts and creative producer at Next in Colour. She's a multidisciplinary artist, cultural curator and community arts worker. Naya Root uses art to understand herself, explore elements of her surroundings, heal and liberate herself and validate her blackness. And Idil is a proud Somali woman raised by the East African community in the Carlton Flats, a settler on unceded Wurundjeri country. Idil uh, em- embeds her belief in freedom, sovereignty and resistance into her work as a creative, youth practitioner and community organiser. And uh, they're here to chat about the new show Ancestral Woods playing at the Ian Potter Centre this Saturday. Yeah, it is. Uh, it looks really incredible, um, and it, I believe that was in collaboration with Footscray Community Arts Centre. So, really encourage people to get along to that. Um, and finally, we will be joined by professors Judith Bassant and Rob Watts, who are both based at RMIT University's School of Global, Urban and Social Studies. And they're going to speak with us about the youth-led Make It 16 campaign to lower the voting age in Australia, which launched on the 13th of June at Parliament House in Canberra. So drawing on their research into young people's political participation, Judith and Rob will unpack why expanding voting eligibility is not just important, but increasingly in line with young people's appetites for political engagement so big show coming up and um encourage you to stay tuned and once again uh keep donating to radiothon hello listeners it's priya and inez from 3cr thursday breakfast we love making breakfast radio as much as you love hearing it it's radiothon time again at 3cr and this year we need to raise two hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars to keep the station going please ship in during our appeal week from the 5th to the 18th of june You can donate by heading to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate or by ringing the station on 03-9419-8377. You can also donate to our crowdraiser at givenow.com.au forward slash cr forward slash breakfast. And make sure to specify Thursday breakfast with your donation. Stay tuned and stay radical this June on 3CR 855 AM. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And these are the news headlines for Thursday, the 22nd of June. The Anti-Poverty Center has warned about the dangers of a labor bill that will expand income management, which is expected to pass in the Senate today after delays to yesterday's planned vote. The expanded bill will lock income controls into Australian social policy, controls that labor had previously said were abolished, such as the basics card and cashless debit card. The Anti-Poverty Centre have warned of myths that income management is voluntary, pointing to mandatory programs in the Northern Territory and elsewhere around the country. The new bill continues to give the government the power to extend income management anywhere in Australia and also, crucially, removes the sunset clause, meaning the bill will have no end date. The Coalition are in support of the legislation, meaning that the Greens and Crossbench unfortunately have no hope of stopping or forcing negotiations any further on the bill. In other news, with a warning, this headline may be distressing to First Nations people. A new source of information and record-keeping on the deaths of First Nations people in custody has launched, with the goal of holding governments to account for their criminal justice systems. The Australian Institute of Criminology will monitor the reporting and are promising greater public transparency and accountability of all governments as a result. The same institute 
has monitored deaths in custody since 1992, but until now there has been no real-time reporting. Also in headlines this week, the Voice to Parliament bill passed the Senate this week, meaning Australians will vote on ensuring a voice in the Constitution in the next six months. Some coalition ministers, the One Nation Party and the United Australia Party voted against the bill, and as did Jaburong Gunai and Gurunjumara Senator Lydia Thorpe. Senator Thorpe unsuccessfully moved an amendment to state that sovereignty of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples has never been ceded. In reference to a motion endorsing the implementation of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, Yamati Nunga Woman and Green Senator Dorinda Cox said before the Greens committed to support the voice to Parliament, they pushed for, quote, assurances that First Nations sovereignty would not be impacted through the referendum process, unquote. In a statement to Parliament, Senator Thorpe said, quote, I'll be voting no to the disastrous idea of giving us no power. If this bill gave us power, then I would have thought about supporting it. But I can't support something that gives my people no power. In other news, advocates in Muslim communities have raised concerns about terminology in the federal government's new flag ban bill, which bans the use of extremist symbols in Australia, including those related to the Islamic State. Advocates say some elements of the bill's wording are highly offensive and said community consultations failed to consult on references in the bill to the, quote, global jihadist ideology, end quote. They warn that the wording could entrench false perceptions linking Islam and extremism. And finally, in news headlines for today. Climate activists have successfully occupied Newcastle and Melbourne ports this week with yesterday marking the third day of action by protesters targeting major East Coast coal ports. Activists have managed to block traffic on a main road in Footscray, close to the New South Wales-Hunter railway line, and agitate the New South Wales Police Minister, in doing so bringing attention to the climate crisis and aiming to, quote, break the system that is breaking us, unquote. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, 22nd of June. You're listening to 3CR. Hi, I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we We are are from from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. Every form of discrimination that exists in our community is magnified and utilised by prisons to cause greater division and disarm solidarity. We've got to really put a lens of perspective on this and know that there are children being incarcerated as young as 10 years old. Police and prisons, they're doing exactly what this colony wants them to. Who do we defend? And who else? Prisons, pull them down. Yay. Radiothon 2023. Stay tuned. 
Stay Radical. To donate, call 039-419-8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. And we're back on Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And this is just another reminder that Radiothon is still going this month. 3CR is trying to raise $275,000 to keep us on air for the next 12 months. And we're encouraging you to stay tuned and stay radical and also stay involved by chipping in to the station. So there are a couple of ways people can donate. You can call the station on 039419-8377. That's 039419-8377 during business hours. Or you can text 0488-809-855. That's 0488-809-855. And you'll get a text back with donation details. And you can also donate online at givenow.com.au forward slash CR forward slash breakfast or head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And you can also drop into the station at 21 Smith Street, Fistroy during business hours. Yep, so get on those lines and support us for another year. Um, next up, we're going to hear some speeches from the Accessible Tram Stops for All rally, held on the 17th of June to launch the campaign to win accessible tram stops on Sydney Road before proposed rail upgrades remove eight level crossings in Brunswick. First up, we're going to hear Monica Hart, a Marybeth councillor who spoke about the history of transport campaigns in so-called Melbourne from 1980, including the upfield line closures, and honoured disability activists who are no longer with us today. We will also hear Elise Cunningham from the FOE Sustainable Cities campaign, who shared campaign information and the importance of putting pressure on government since only 15% of tram network is accessible to wheelchair users. Crossing removal is planned for around two years' time, resulting in closures to the upfield line and adjoining bike path for around 18 months, leaving older people people with disability and many other community members with no access to the city of Marybeck, likely to lose work and become further isolated from society. Currently, there are no accessible tram stops between Park Street, Brunswick, and Baker's Road in North Coburg, which is the end of the line on the Route 19 tram. Approximately 200 to 300 people attended the rally, including music from the Riff Raff Radical Marching Band, stopping traffic and trams at the corner of the Brunswick Town Hall. I just want to give a shout-out. That's Councillor Sue Bolton. Um, I'm also here as a very big councillor. I want to give a shout-out to uh, James Codlin from the South Ward Councillor who's here, Mark Riley, and councillors who aren't here but have lent their uh, names to the statement um, in a personal capacity, which is an Angelic Epinopolis and... Um, also, um, Lambros Tapanos from the South Ward. Um, I really want to acknowledge um, the support of the, behind Marybeck Council. Brunswick Council has always been part of transport campaigns, always there. Uh, Marybeck Council has continually supported this campaign around the accessible tram stops and uh, their advocacy paper to the state government on a Brunswick Skyrail. Thro- 
highest asset priority in that is the priority for accessible tram stops to be installed before the construction of the Brunswick Skyrail. So just, just want to give a shout out and for that support today and acknowledge that. But most of all, I want to give a shout out and acknowledge for everyone who's here today. It's been a long time since we've all walked together up Sydney Road because this campaign didn't start just with the announcement of the Brunswick Skyrail. As speakers have said today, this campaign started 30 years ago, 40 years ago, sadly. And it started, shame, and it started when successive governments were ripping up railway lines. The Loney Report of 1980, which saw railway lines being ripped up. The Kane government with their plans and some actions they were able to do in the 1980s and then the Kenneth government. And in, 19, in the 1980s, we saw the move to get rid of, basically rip up St Kilda railway line, the Port Melbourne railway line, and we saw activists, we saw people with disabilities chaining themselves to the trains, chaining themselves to trams, because what was happening was accessible transport was being replaced by inaccessible transport. There were campaigns through to the Equal Opportunity Board um, and even though why they acknowledged discrimination because it had already happened, you couldn't reverse it. Then in 1988, that's when we saw what was the start of the campaign by the Labor government to close the upfield line. But the resistance they were met with was the same sort of resistance that we're beginning here today. And that was of a broad-based community, worker, trade unionist campaign. And that was a campaign about keeping accessible public transport. It was about keeping the upfield line open. That was a campaign that was broad-based, well-organised, and that was a campaign that very solidly met the Labor government. It was also the campaign which saw the victory of the retention of the upfield line. And it's that same feeling I get when I walk up here today because I remember, I remember the people who were part of that campaign and I see so many faces around here today. I remember the work with Emilio and the people who wheeled up Sydney Road, who walked on crutches and shoulder to shoulder, lobbied and worked solidly to defeat not only the plans of the Labor government to close the upfield line, but the plans then of the Kennett government. So that was a long, hard, that was from 1988, the late 80s, to 95 when they decided to put money into rebuilding the upfield line and upgrading it. That was seven years, folks. We don't want seven years, but that was the sort of campaign that it took, and that's what we're building today. So congratulations to everyone for being part of, because this is just the beginning. And 
I reflect the, on the people who aren't here today, because many of those friends and comrades in disability movement aren't here. But someone in particular I want to mention is a man who founded Disability Resources Centre back many years ago and who came with us when we started to launch and prepare for this rally. And that's a man called Frank Hall Bentick. And he was there in the 80s, he was there in the 70s, he was there in the 90s, he's been there right through. And sadly, probably one of the last events that Frank went to was probably the, be the beginning when we were planning for this campaign, when we were over where the scaffolding is. And I think we carry, we carry the legacy of Frank. He always, they talked about him being a patient man, that he was determined and he was a man of such inspiration. And that's the inspiration that we bring with us in this campaign that we're on today. And I've also been thinking about another great activist, Katie Ball. And Katie talked about, and it was at a rally way back in the 90s sometimes, she said, well, we've got the technology to make Victorian transport accessible. But what is lacking is the will of the government. And nowhere is that more evident than a plan to have elevated, elevated Skyrail for $19 billion in Brunswick without elevating and making accessible the tram stops of our people, for our people, for all our people, the people in wheelchairs, for all the people, I include myself in that, for the prams, the people at every part of the age group where we have vulnerability. We sit in council and we get asked to, you know, look at plans for higher density living. That comes, that's a big push. But what's higher density living if you don't cater for the heart and soul of people and the heart and soul of people to be able to move and to have access to community. So that's the essence of the legacy that we bring from the days, from the old days. And it's wonderful to see those old familiar faces, to remember those that aren't here, but to see the new faces that are here for this campaign. A campaign that we have to take to the heart of Spring Street because that's where we're going, right to the depths, right across a broad-based movement that we're building to make this a human rights issue of accessibility for all. Accessibility for all. And it's just so great to see friends, comrades and supporters here today. Um, thanks so much to Christian and all of the incredible folks at the Sydney Road Accessible Transport Campaign for inviting me to speak today and thank you everyone for joining in solidarity. Um, as Sue said, I'm Elise Cunningham and I coordinate the Sustainable Cities Collective at Friends of the Earth Melbourne. Um, and we've been campaigning for equitable, safe and accessible public transport in Melbourne and in Victoria for nearly 50 years. Um, we are part of the Transport for All Coalition and have joined with the Disability Resources Centre and people from all over Melbourne to protest inaccessible tram stops all across our city. Um, more recently, we joined with Martin Leckie as he attempted to board the tram on Ligon Street repeatedly. And every time he did it was told the same thing. You can't get on this tram. It's not accessible to you. Well, that's unacceptable. In 2020, during the lockdown, we joined with DRC again for a digital campaign to end the lifelong lockdown 
that folks with disability often face throughout their entire lives. And today we're here to stand in solidarity with the Sydney Road Accessible Transport Campaign and all people in our city and in our state who are facing the everyday struggles of transport disadvantage due to a lack of care from our government and continued ignorance of the needs of people with disabilities and mobility issues who are inhibited from safely and freely moving about our city. Only 15% of our tram network is accessible for wheelchair users. Shame! People who can't drive are left facing social isolation, economic disadvantage, and are kept out of participating in our communities because the government chooses to turn a blind eye. Shame! People's level of ability in their body should not inhibit them from accessing essential services or from doing the things that they love that able-bodied people take for granted. According to the National Disability Standards for Accessible Transport, Victoria's transport system was required to be 80 to 90% accessible by 2022, but they missed that target. We stand and will continue to stand in solidarity with the Sydney Road Accessible Transport campaign and keep on fighting to make our entire public transport network accessible for all. Thank you. And that was Elise Cunningham from the Friends of the Earth Sustainable Cities campaign who was sharing some campaign information at the Accessible Tram Stops for All rally, which was held on the 17th of June to launch the campaign to win accessible tram stops on Sydney Road before proposed rail upgrades remove Level 8 crossings in Brunswick. And before Elise, you heard from Monica Hart, who's a Marybeck councillor. And Monica spoke about the history of transport campaigns in so-called Melbourne from 1980, including about the upfield line closures and also honored disability advocates uh, sorry activists no longer with us today and we'll have more information about how you can support the campaign and uh, sign the petition in our show notes and we're going to head to a song now uh, so we are going to be listening to leaving the light by genesis Ousu, and you're listening to thursday morning breakfast on 3cr 855 a.m
you know that each donation over $2 you make to 3CR's Radiothon is tax deductible? That means that when you're doing your tax return business, you can claim your 3CR donation as a legitimate tax deduction. To make a pledge to this year's Radiothon, call the station on 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. So we just wanted to say uh, that Thursday breakfast has made its target. Woo! Woo! Oh, shame on me for deleting the coin rattle sting or uh, any applause stings as well. I should not have replaced those. Um, hey! There we go. There's the applause. And we want to thank you all so much. And especially, uh, we want to thank Tucker Hayes, who has donated $20 via the CrowdRaiser. And Tucker has also, I hear, made some pretty awesome, uh, little sound grabs. So, uh, Inez, do you want to, do you want to share that, uh, with us? You bet I do. Excuse me, that was incredible. Tucker, you can come on our show anytime so we can have a chat about your incredible music production skills. Um, if you did all of this just with the Humble Garage Band, I have a lot of questions to ask you. Tucker is 11 years old, folks, and that's on youth voices and participation. <laughs> um, so once again, thanks to Tucker and to everybody else who donated. Breakfast Overall needs $721 to reach our $8,000 collective breakfast programs target and once again the station-wide target is $275,000 and we need $150,000 to get there so we've got quite a ways to go so please keep donating stay tuned stay radical call the station on 0394198377 that's 0394198377 or head to our website at 3cr.org.au to donate and now, Leila, we're going to head to another track. Yep. So next up, we're going to go to some tropical house. Uh, we're going to listen to a track by Electronics, who is a music producer, beat maker, and singer-songwriter who specializes in electronic house, um, in tropical house and chill-out music. She also enjoys experimenting with diverse styles of electronic music and teaches music lessons via Ableton. Um, so here we are. Uh, go ahead, Inez. <laughs> mm mm-hmm. 
And that was Ocean Friends by Electronics. I really want everyone to go listen to this song if you can. It sounds like bubbles and the ocean and joy. So who doesn't want a bit of that in the morning, you know? Um, and now we're going to uh, Priya to share a really important event. Yes, that's right. Although I'm going to come back to that song very quickly because I love the little sneep, 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 sneep kind of <laughs> sound effect towards the end. I was like, sneep, 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 sneep. Um, anyway, sorry, that's just a little, one of my little brain worms. And we've been talking about worms. Uh, my folks in the studio know. Also, thanks to Tucker's mom for donating another 20 bucks when we played one of Tucker's excellent little sound grabs. Are we going to hear another one? Oh, first of all, the applause. But maybe a little bit later, we will hear another one of Tucker's excellent creations. Are you on, Ines? Yes, Tucker. Ah, oh, that is incredible. You know what? I think I'm calling it now. We need to commission Tucker to make the new soundtrack for all of the breakfast programs. Um, I'm putting that on on air now as a commitment that we're going to do that. Um, hopefully we can scrounge up some cash to commission Tucker. Um, but I wanted to plug an important event that is happening tomorrow. So this Friday, the 23rd of June, Oral History Victoria is hosting a symposium themed oral history across and within communities. And this event coincides with Refugee Week, and it's open to all members of the community interested in hearing about the way that life stories are collected, preserved, and experienced. So the guest speakers are Dr. Andre Dow from the groundbreaking Behind the Wire Oral History Project, which recorded the first-hand experiences of people detained by the Australian government after seeking asylum in this country. These human stories became an award-winning podcast called The Messenger. And Andre will be joined by Dr. Jordana Silverstein, co-author of the recently released Impact Report, Getting My Dignity Back. And she'll be talking about just how meaningful and validating it can be to share one's story and to create an oral history. And listeners might recall that Jordy was on our show both last week to plug Radiothon, but recently to talk about her new uh, book, Cruel Care, which also draws on some of her oral history work, but this time looking at the side of policymakers who uh, engage their own emotions to sort of distance uh, distance themselves and their own actions from, uh, you know, the violent carceral system at Australia's borders. So it's really interesting looking at the multiple ways that oral histories can be used to tell the stories of both the policy architectures around uh, Australia's carceral refugee system, but also the lived experiences of refugees themselves. And our fellow breakfast presenter, Claudia Craig, will also be making an appearance at the symposium. And Claudia is going to be talking about the role of community radio in creating and sharing the oral histories of diverse communities. So the symposium is on this Friday, the 23rd of June from 9.45 a.m. to 2 p.m. at Museo Italiano, 199 Faraday Street in Carlton. And it's a hybrid event, so you can join online if you can't make it in person. And you can register by heading to Humanitics and looking for OHV Symposium 2023, or you can go to the events page on the Oral History Victoria website. That is oralhistoryvictoria.org.au. Now, bookings close today at 5 p.m., so get in quick, and we will have all of that information in our show notes. 
Hello, listeners. It's Priya and Inez from 3CR Thursday Breakfast. We love making breakfast radio as much as you love hearing it. It's Radiothon time again at 3CR, and this year we need to raise $275,000 to keep the station going. Please ship in during our appeal week from the 5th to the 18th of June. You can donate by heading to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate or by ringing the station on 03-9419-8377. You can also donate to our crowd raiser at givenow.com.au forward slash cr forward slash breakfast. And make sure to specify Thursday breakfast with your donation. Stay tuned and stay radical this June on 3CR 855 AM. Hello, welcome back. I must say, I'm enjoying every single sting that we're playing from Tucker. Um, that's going to be the best part of this show. And now we will be going to an interview with a very dear friend, Angelica Ojanaka, who is a youth development advocate, researcher and speaker. She served as a 2022 Australian Youth Representative to the United Nations, as well as being involved in a number of projects and organisations. You can typically find her speaking, facilitating or shaping change on social inequalities experienced by children and young people um, due to mental health as well as, you know, cultural, cultural rights in national and global forums. And she joins us today to chat about the importance of investing in authentic youth voices. Welcome, Angelica. How are you this morning? I am really good. I've had a really crazy week, actually all relevant to youth participation, but hey, when is youth participation not messy and crazy? No. But um, I'm good. Yay, thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. Um, I know we've done a little intro to you, but you do so much. Yeah. Could you tell our listeners a little bit more about what you do? Mm, yeah, I, I really did do a lot. Um, so as you mentioned, of course, my name is Angelica Chanak and I'm, I am, you know, joining this, uh, interview from unceded Dara country. Um, and I go by she, her pronouns. Um, I wear many hats, uh, in the youth participation space and particularly, and also in public health more broadly. Um, so right now I, I work primarily as a researcher on areas to do with child rights areas to do with community child health as well um, but I'm also an advocate and I think that's probably the biggest um, thing that I do so um, advocacy is what I breathe and what I love and so I kind of spread that across different realms but particularly mental health and particularly community health as well. Um, I've just recently also uh, begun a lot of work in the youth civic engagement space and looking at how we can actually make sure that um, intersectionality is stored at all levels when it comes to young people's civic engagement. So um, I guess that that's how I would broadly describe my um, current experience of what I do um, and, and the fact that, I, you know, I work with a few organisations that um, are part of those particular topic areas as well. Yeah, amazing. It's, yeah, you definitely do wear so many hats, you know, either nationally or on global forums. And I think yeah. it's, um, I think it's really commendable even seeing that, uh, journey as a friend of yours and being able to see that, you know, you are authentic and you're champion, championing, um, youth voices across every platform. Um, you've also been, yeah, a really important youth voice yourself, particularly around, you know, issues of youth participation. Uh, community and mental health. Why do you feel that, I guess, youth voices are not being heard? 
I, this is a really good question because um, I try to conceptualize what does being heard look like? Uh, because being heard, for starters, for some people, might actually just be listening to what I say. That's as simple as that. Being heard might be listening to what I say and then putting things into action. Or being heard might be I need to be part of the process. I need to be present and I need to actually have my ideas um, actualized <laughs> into, into solutions. And I think we struggle with the idea of the fact that being heard means very different things for different young people at different stages of their life. And that is okay. And it's evolving. Um, so for starters, we define it <laughs> so poorly and we, and we really don't know how to move flexibly with the idea of how young people want to be heard. And the other is around who gets to control uh, the construction of youth voice um, and who gets to lead youth voice. And I think that um, this concept of young people um, having their ideas co-constructed by, I guess, people who are older than them um, because they might be, you know, older and wiser um, to some degree, it's true, of course, but um, we've historically and see it a lot as well in um, the literature around the sociology of childhood that young people have traditionally been conceptualised as becoming adults. Um, and rather than hearing their voices for the stages and the experiences they have right now, they're only kind of constructed um, as a pathway to, oh, this is what they need for their future, or this is what they need for themselves as an adult, except but rather than, you know, not right now. So um, I think we really struggle with that idea. Um, but also, uh, you know, if we're going to be very honest, I think there's, um, quite a lot of historical, you know, barriers to young people's voices being acknowledged as valid and being acknowledged as part of the process of building society and part of the process of civic, civic overall civic engagement as well. And there's particular groups of young people who historically get ignored because it serves a better purpose to some people, particularly in power. Um, so that's, that's also, you know, why youth voices aren't being, I guess, heard in a multifaceted faceted way. But I do acknowledge that the efforts are being made um, for that to change. I just think that there's certain voices that do get prioritised quite often in this being heard yeah, kind of idea. Yeah, And being able to acknowledge that the definition is kind of where it starts, like what does... Exactly. What does being heard mean or what... Um, how do you conceptualize a young person? I think what you touched on on uh, becoming adult is so prevalent. It's like people are, you know, young people are definitely not respected to the same extent for the experiences that mm. they have. Um, and also when we, you know, when we're talking about really investing in youth, particularly around, you know, living and live, you know, lived experiences, which is a lot of the spaces where you've worked, um, you know, especially in mental health, what does, like, actually inclusive youth participation look like? Because you have to invest to, um, you know, get the voices in, in, and not just exploit young people. Mm. I, do we have all day to discuss <laughs> what it looks like? I wish we did. Um, there's two things that immediately come to mind for me is the concept of respect 
and actually it not just being an airy-fairy concept, but what that looks like in your policies and in your structures that are supporting youth participation. Um, so respectful engagement, how do you do that at each point of youth participation? Um, that to me is what's, what makes it inclusive. Um, it's just thinking about, oh, how am I embracing difference? How am I, uh, how am I incorporating difference in, 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 um, the pathways to getting young people to actually be involved in my project or, um, in whatever kind of policy initiative I'm developing? Um, is there anything that is a barrier or structure or organizational or institutional policy that actually obstructs um, people's you know engagement and that respectful engagement between young people and whatever you know agent is the one kind of instructing that participation? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that those are really important to consider, and we don't think about respect beyond just language. Um, that we use with young people, it actually has to show up in your policies. It's actually got to show up in um, what dictates your work day to day to actually make that inclusive youth participation happen. Um, and, you know, with that comes obviously really embracing, like, you know, not being discriminatory and not being judgmental based off what young people's experiences are. Um, and, you know, I think that we see that a lot when it comes to youth participation, um, you know, assuming that young people want to be in a space that they can't really fully be themselves is, um, is like, you know, thinking that that's okay actually is not. Um, and it actually derails young people from wanting to be further involved um, in projects or initiatives. Um, but then the other thing that I think about, and, I, I, and this is the one that I think needs to have maybe a bit more robust discussion about, is the resourcing behind youth participation. Um, because there's been many times in personal experiences where I go, you know, why do we not have um, someone who has culturally safe training um, or cultural safety training who's actually, you know, engaging with this diverse group of young people? Why do we have to ask for, um, you know, for clear information about what certain terms mean, you know, in the mental health space or, um, or in any kind of industry and, you know, the jargon being removed so that we can actually participate fully. Uh, and and that, to me, is, you know, comes down to a lot of the resourcing and the investment that we put into um, youth, youth participation for the information that we receive as young people, um, but also, like, the basic need to make a, a space, a youth space um, affirming, you know, like what it is it, astounding to me how we don't think about actually the basic needs that a young person might need to have um, to participate and um, and not put money towards that. So um, I think that there's a lot of things that um, contribute to you know making youth participation inclusive. But I always think about those those two. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Being able to resource and fund, um, but also from what I'm hearing is like, you know, and I've experienced this being in the lived experience sector as well, is you need to have young people definitely at the start of whatever you're doing. It can't just be yeah. a tick box at the end <laughs> to to get like a little bit of feedback so you can tick a box. Um, exactly. Yeah, thank you so much. That definitely is very uh, enlightening and you've articulated that really well. Um, and I think just, you know, for, for one of our last questions, uh, I know that you definitely do advocacy at the community, national and international levels. And I think I'm just curious, you know, what do you think is the most 
challenging and the most rewarding part of your advocacy, particularly, mm-hmm. you know, wanting to support existing youth voices and not just, you know, speak for them? Yeah, I think that the last bit of that question is probably the most challenging part for me, um, is that as a youth advocate, um, and I've seen this not just with myself but with others, we struggle with being able to create and hold space for youth voices that aren't engaged enough and aren't actually spoken to enough and being able to relinquish the space that we occupy across different levels. And I think I think that's the thing that I've struggled when I've gone from really grassroots, you know, uh, activism to an advocacy to, like, the UN, <laughs> you know, is, is thinking about, well, I'm actually, I, you know, as much as I'm sharing people's experiences, it's still me here in this space. You know, in what way am I actually going to, you know, once I kind of, you know, end as a young person, which sounds really morbid, the way that I said that, <laughs> but, you know, once I, you know, transition out of being this young person identity, how do I actually be an ally for other young people to fill up the spaces and occupy even more space that we need to? And I think that I sub- that that's probably the most challenging thing sometimes to really remember. Um, but the most rewarding part of advocacy is, I mean, it has to be actually seeing change and actually seeing your voice, um, all the things that you've shared, whether it might be from lived experience or experience adjacent to you, um, seeing that influence society in some way. And I know we sometimes look really big picture um, to, like, like, policy reform and change, and that's fantastic because, you know, of course that's rewarding. But for me, I think when I've heard from someone that they're just, they've just been inspired to, I don't know, talk to someone else about a particular topic area, might be a parent or might be a friend, that does it for me. I, I think that that, uh, you know, that I appreciate a lot more, a, a lot in this kind of advocacy journey. And so um, that I would say that that's probably the most rewarding. But, yeah, yeah, hopefully yeah. that makes yeah. sense. <laughs> no, 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 it definitely does. Like being able to... Um, articulate that it is challenging um, in many aspects, but a lot of that also makes it really rewarding when the change does happen. And as you've said, like there is definitely international global policy scale efforts that we can definitely, you know, try to make. But, you know, we should not neglect the daily or, you know, weekly (laughs) changes that we could do in our community and how we show up for each other. And can I just say that from my experience, actually, from you know, being Australia's delegate uh, for young people in last year's um, General Assembly at the UN, everything that was said that really stood out and actually was the most transformative in terms of influencing um, some of the negotiations, influencing some of the declarations that were that were written, was deeply informed by what happens locally. And I think that that was my biggest takeaway, actually, in terms of advocacy, is that we understate how much on-the-ground grassroots activism is actually shaping international dialogue. And without it, uh, we wouldn't be able to advance a lot of things. And I think that was a real big eye-opener and something that I, yeah, I really do try to remind people think think locally and think specifically about what's happening on the ground because that's what we really need to 
channel a lot of our advocacy efforts into. Yeah, absolutely. And knowing that, um, you know, you're doing, you're doing the work at every level. I think it's definitely really, um, inspiring and you are not talking over people. You're definitely supporting and thinking about when you transition out of the youth role, um, how you can be a great ally. And I think that's really, really wonderful. Um, lastly, what, uh, do you have anything that you would like to highlight or anything that you're working on right now or anything at all? Yeah, um, and I, I love this question because I think it, as an advocate, sometimes, I, um, and maybe I'm only speaking for myself, but I, I find it hard to talk about, you know, what's coming up. And I think that that's, you know, we need to talk a lot about that a, a lot more as advocates. Um, so for me, right now, what I'm trying to work on is building the youth civic engagement space, but also looking at um, socioeconomic and um, cultural rights. Um, that is something that's been a very big passion of mine and, and really building a body of work related to that and, and try to find ways for young people to um, have well, their voices heard but to critically um, engage with the civic engagement space in their local context. So um, that's what I've been trying to work on at the moment. Um, and then I'm also kind of just venturing into my own personal journey of, of, of leadership and, um, and as a researcher, but also um, politically as well. So that's, you know, something that's been very new for me, but um, I'm very excited for taking that advocacy into spaces that um, have opened for me, which is um, which has been wonderful. Um, so, yeah, there's a few things particularly, but that, that youth civic engagement space is what um, I'm primarily focused on and, and trying to do um, a bit of work uh, locally with some councils here in Sydney um, to really shape that space uh, to be a lot more, um, well, our policy efforts to be a lot more um, meaningful to young people. So, yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much, Angelica. Um, can't wait to see all that you're doing and we'll definitely link your website below if you want to get in touch with Angelica or, yeah, find out what she's working on. But thank you so much for joining us here today on 3CR Thursday Breakfast and I hope you have a lovely day. Thank you for having me on. No worries. Bye. Bye. And that was Angelica Ojanaka, who is a youth development advocate, researcher and speaker, and she served as the 2022 Australian Youth Representative to the United Nations, as well as being involved in a number of projects and organisations. And you can find her speaking, facilitating or shaping change on social inequalities experienced by children and young people, youth civic and economic engagement, cultural rights and mental health on national and global forums. And she joined us to talk about the importance of investing in authentic youth voice and youth participation in mental health sectors. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, and it is currently 8 o'clock. So here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ujoma Umbinyo Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Ayan every Monday at 2.30pm on 3CR Community Radio. Have you experienced or seen racism against blackfellas? 
Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up. Be heard. Call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter. And now we will be joined by um, Ruth Nairut Rauch and Idil Ali. And Ruth is a Future Reset uh, project producer at Footscray Community Arts and a creative producer at Next in Colour. She's a multidisciplinary artist, cultural curator and community arts worker. And Ruth uses art to understand herself, explore elements of her surroundings, heal, liberate herself and validate her blackness. And Idil is a proud Somali woman raised by the East African community in the Carlton Flats. A settler on unceded Wurundjeri land, Idil um, embeds her belief in freedom, sovereignty and resistance into her work as a creative, youth practitioner and community organiser. And they're here to chat about the event this Saturday, 24th of June at the Ian Potter Centre. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Good morning. Good morning, Inez. Good morning. Thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. Um, how are you both doing? I'm cold. <laughs> <laughs> Same. Good and cold. Amazing. Yeah, I think I um, had to wear at least seven pairs of socks to uh, get out of the door this morning. Um, yeah, so I think maybe we could start off with, can you tell us a little bit more about the event and what we can expect? Maybe I'll start off with you, Ruth. Um, so today is, a, I mean, um, Saturday's event. I guess what you can expect is greatness, is black excellence, is um, incredible storytellers that are able to, um, I guess, talk about black consciousness and how we experience, um, you know, different, I guess, intersectionalities of our existence. <laughs> um, yeah. Amazing. Um, I don't know if I've answered that question right. No, there's no right or wrong. You're doing, you know, you, you've helped put on the event, um, and you know it best, so I think you did a great job. Um, Edel, is, did you have anything else you wanted to add? Like anything you're really looking forward to about the event? Well, I just, I, I guess I wanted to say I love, um, not to big up myself, but I love the lineup. Like I love who Ruth put together, and I feel like I've been to a few events that Ruth has, um, organized over the years, so I, I love um, what artist she puts together. So as soon as she asked me, I was really excited because I was like, you know, I know that she she's a star programming, so I'm excited to be on stage with the other performers. There's some of the performers that I've looked up to their artistry for a very long time. So, um, yeah, I'd say that. No, of course. I think the lineup does look incredible. Um, and I know it's in collaboration with Footscray Community Arts. And yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And I definitely want everyone to get down there. Um, but when we're also thinking about, you know, the trans, I guess the transformative nature of storytelling or spoken word, um, I guess what comes to mind for you and really what do you want the audiences to feel? Maybe I'll start off with you, Idil. Yeah, I guess for me, I've had a bit of time to think about this question because um, it's come up before in conversations as well. And I think um, when I write poetry, I guess I decide what I'm going to just write and keep on the pages. And then, well, I don't decide what I write and keep on the pages, but I decide what I keep on the pages and what I decide to perform. And um, I've noticed over the years I had 
a perception when I was younger and started performing as an artist that there would be certain people from um, my community who would resonate with the words that I had to say. And um, as I continued to perform and I had, uh, I heard things from, from audience members and people had chats with me over the years, I've noticed that um, when you're performing, there's different parts that people resonate with. So I guess what it is that I want people, audience members to feel is to take whatever it is um, that they resonate with and feel a call to action. And I think my poetry is around identity and um, self-discovery, but it's also about resistance and movement. And I would really love people to feel a sense of strength and connection when they hear me perform. And I would hope that it would make them want to do whatever it is that they feel like is necessary, whatever they feel like they could contribute to. Um, I'm not going to say changing the world because that's a bit much, but like, I guess, um, changing their relationships, like, you know, improving their relationships in their lives and the people that we're connected to and the conditions that we're in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's really special. And I guess changing your individual relationships maybe is how you change the world on a bigger scale. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what about you, Ruth? Did you have, um, like any thoughts on, you know, what storytelling means to you and what you really want the audience to feel? Um, the, the thinking around ancestral words really stem from um, reclaiming that storytelling is, you know, an ancestral tool that, you know, um, people from our communities have used to tell stories, to capture history, to archive things, to document things. Because oral history is how we've maintained, um, you know, the way we have archived history. And, you know, coming from the continent of Africa, we had and the kind of colon- how colonialism has disrupted the way we've told stories. And um, the dreaming around ancestral words is really just about, you know, audience having that experience of connecting with artists, um, especially in such a, you know, um, industry space um, like NGV Community Hall. You know, I really wanted to create spaces for black and brown voices and, um, to really capture their existence and to really share that because often sometimes we're not really the narrators or the protagonists of our stories often mm-hmm. is observers outside of our communities telling our stories so I thought it was mm-hmm. really important to showcase you know different varieties of artists to really talk about you know who they are where they come from and where they're going and a lot of that also is influenced from you know this kind of um, idea of like representation and diversity, I think that sometimes people always just stop with the physical representation of blackness, um, but not really cross on how black consciousness works also, you know, um, and giving space for black, um, you know, literature to really exist um, because, you know, we're, we're here reclaiming our spaces and reclaiming ourselves. So I thought it was really important um, to create spaces like that. And I hope that, you know, or experience what they need to experience and connect um, to the artists the way that they need to experience because, you know, I feel like all these artists that are going to be performing on Saturday all have such a unique way of telling their story. So, you know, I'm really, really, really excited to see how that unfolds. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, definitely touching like going off that, what you just said, um, I think so often, you know, lived living experiences are often sidelines um, and not, you know, respected to the same extent. And I think that's so disappointing. And often it's, it's you know, compared to whatever the experts are in the field. Um, 
I guess why do you think you, you've touched on this a little bit, but I guess why do you think it's really important to actually, you know, validate and you know really invest in lived and living experiences in these spaces and not just um, the people who have been like creatives for their whole um, career lives? I guess maybe starting off with you, Idel. Yeah, I guess going off of some of the things that Ruth said, something that really stands out to me is um, lived experience uh, is being included more and more in conversations, but I feel like it's in addition to or as a bit of a side piece or something that would make um, a narrative more interesting rather than it being held at the centre. And I think what Ruth is doing with her work is that she's holding lived experience at the centre of her work and um, the importance of having curators and producers who um, who share experiences with some of the performers, who ha- whoever is the person being put to the forefront. Because um, I've been in situations, and I think a lot of artists um, and people in lived experience in whatever field um, have been put in places where we're put alongside people who are, quote-unquote, experts in the field who have conflicting views. Um, and both views are put as equal standing, you know? And I think there's mm-hmm. a bit of... Um, there's a problem with the framing of things like that. And um, I think that there's a lack of care sometimes in the way things are curated or um, how different people are put together and how ideas are seen as like a differing of ideas, a diversity of ideas, rather than um, it being thought about the concern about who do these perspectives, um, who do they have an impact on and whether or not, you know, experts in the field who don't have lived experience should be on the same plane as somebody who does have lived experience or something. So I think um, it's a great question. I think it means a lot, like I, I have a lot of thoughts about it, but I, I think in tying it to ancestral words, I really love that um, Nidal is the person who's curating this, you know, and I think um, she's holding the project at every stage and has creative control. So I think that, um, and then she gives that, she, you know, like I think, I feel like as an artist, I feel well, well supported and um, cared for, and I feel like my I I don't, I don't think I'm going to be put in a space where I'm going to feel like you know unsafe or you know um, or that I'm you know being used uh, tokenized in any way you know, and I think that that's really important as artists to not have to not have to second guess everything that's going to happen. I didn't know I didn't need to know who the other artists were or um, what's going to happen on the day before I said yes, and sometimes I really do you know. So um, shout out to Nairu and the work that she does. Um, and the amazing work that's happening with um, Future Reset right now with the other people who are in, involved in it. I think it's really important work for community art. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for, you know, articulating like so, um, so, yeah, concisely because there is so much to say on lived living experience and um, I think it is very poignant to, yeah, point out that should people be on the same panel and we definitely need, um, yeah, diversity in voice but, you know, it can't just be, sideline to the corner as an as an add-on um Nairu, did you have anything else that you wanted to add to that um i think that you know i feel like the purpose of creating these these spaces is dismantling who gets to be an expert and i think mm-hmm. that especially these white institutions these art institutions is that when we look at you know black and brown artists um they Know, they tend to be labelled as emerging and, you know, they're not professional. So it's really just dismantling that narrative and recognising that, A, art is a part of our culture. It is not separate from our culture. It is our culture. Um, you know, storytelling is part of the way we connect. It's the, part, it's, it's the way we document ourselves and our histories. 
so these if we become experts, you know, in in the way that we capture our own cultural IP. So I think mm. that it's really dismantling that purpose of who gets to be in those type of spaces because I just I, you know like you can't tell me that you know like I don't my story doesn't deserve to be you know heard you know and you know compared to a lot of the other spaces where non-black people have plethora of spaces for their voices to be heard. So it's mm-hmm. like, you know, it's this kind of radicalized way of just being like, you know, going back to even like Tony Morrison, it's like it's important for black words and black voices to be heard, you know, because mm-hmm. essentially sometimes, you know, language is such a barrier. You know, when we talk about, you know, accessibility, you know, language is one of those things that we don't really truly know how to access because English is not really our language. You know, this is a colonized language. So when we are able to witness people that can articulate an experience that we know but we don't have the words for, that is liberation. You know, and that is important for people to, you know, to, to be like, oh, wow, I, I know that experience. That experience is very familiar because um, often we don't, you know, a lot of the times when we do have spaces to talk about our lived experience is always traumatized, you know, yeah. it's always the mm-hmm. romanticization of our trauma and what we've gone through. And it's never really about joy. It's never really about self. It's never re- it's never really about celebrating something positive. You know, yes, mm-hmm. we can talk about our own traumas through our own voices, but often that's really the kind of pillar of why artists, you know, I'm, I'm a performer myself, and oftentimes mm. when I'm asked to perform, it's always like, can you perform that, you know, that poem? So it's often also at the same time, artists are asked to, you know, kind of give them this weird, like, type thing that it's like, oh, you know, can you make this type of, like, work? Can you perform? Yep. It's like, no, I have to give artists that agency um, for them to choose what they want to perform because they are, the, you know, like, they, they have that power. Absolutely. Um, and yeah. I think leaving it on that is like give artists the agency to to do and say what they want to and not be exploited in that way. And it sounds like the event that you're putting on um, is like really exciting and really wonderful. Um, and yeah, um, so I just want to double check. So it's this Saturday, 24th of June from the 1st to the 3rd at the NGB in Potter Center at Fed Square and it's free entry. Yeah, it'll yeah, be at the community hall um, on the yeah. ground floor. Okay, great, on the ground floor. Amazing, sorry. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for. Um, no this, uh, I could talk to you both forever, but please get down there. And thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Nez. Thank you, Idol. Thank you, take care. It's good to talk to you both. You too, bye. Bye. Thanks. Panoply, panorama, panpipe. Pansy? Aha! Pansexual. Knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope... Only on 3CR 855 AM digital and 3cr.org.au.
we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM for our final interview of the day. And we are going to be joined by Professors Judith Passant and Rob Watts, who are both based at RMIT University School of Global, Urban and Social Studies. And they're speaking with us about the youth-led Make It 16 campaign to lower the voting age in Australia, which launched on the 13th of June at Parliament House in Canberra. And drawing on their research into young people's political participation, Judith and Rob are going to unpack why expanding voting eligibility is not just important, but increasingly in line with young people's appetites for political engagement. Judith writes in the fields of sociology, politics, youth studies, policy, media and technology studies and history, and she was awarded a member of the Order of Australia in 2017 for significant service to education as a social scientist, advocate and academic specialising in youth studies research. And she also provides advice to government and non-government organisations. And Rob Watts teaches policy studies, politics, the history of ideas and applied human rights at RMIT University. And he's a founding member of the Greens Party in Victoria, a founding editor of the Journal of Just Policy and established the Australian Centre for Human Rights Education at RMIT in 2008. Good morning, Judith and Rob. Good morning. How are good you? morning, Priya. Yes, good morning. Um, it is really great to have you both on. Now, uh, Judith, I thought we could begin by discussing some of your own research about trends in political engagement by young people in Australia. So how do some of the key asks of the Make It 16 campaign track alongside your exploration of young people's political concerns and their choices to become politically engaged? I'm thinking particularly in relation to the climate crisis. Yeah, they track in pretty, they're pretty well aligned, Priya, um, with just got a big uh, Australian Research Council with colleagues in other universities um, and of course our research is showing that young people are interested in um, a full range of um, issues, political physical issues and like um, climate change obviously is one, uh, education and student debt is uh, another um, Issues around COVID, um, and in particular, the, their omission from decision-making about um, that, that period and the policies. They're interested in issues like uh, housing and, and work. Mm-hmm. So a full range or full gamut of, of issues, but in particular, I think there is a particular interest in uh, issues of climate change. And the way in which they are expressing their politics uh, you know, is, is uh, through a full range of different kinds of things. It's not just protest action or blockades. It's also strategic litigation. Um, obviously, you know, podcasts and and institutional governance. They're being elected to local councils across the board um, on advisory committees um, and so on and so forth. And the same thing is happening outside Australia as well. And indeed, Young people have been engaged in politics for a very long time. It's not a recent thing. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think even though the things like the, stu- the school strike for climate might be the most um, visible, like publicly visible uh, examples of young people getting politically involved, as you say, there are so many different ways that, um, you know, people that are below the voting age as it currently stands have been getting involved in various levels of local government and in other sort of strategic um, 
you know, engagements to sort of put forward their political concerns and have them heard. And uh, Judith, you spoke to the international arena. So, Rob, I was hoping you might be able to uh, uh, expand on that context to situate the Make It 16 campaign within a broader trend of campaigns that are pushing to lower the voting age. So have you observed any noteworthy political trends in countries where the voting age has already been lowered as a result of youth-led campaigns? Sure, Priya. The, um, the evidence is that in those dozen or so countries that have already lowered the voting age to 16 uh, in Europe, uh, Latin America and so forth, so on, we see good evidence saying that uh, young people's formal political engagement increases, obviously because they get the vote. They And, and these countries generally don't have compulsory voting, so you, your choice to vote is still voluntary in that sense. We do see increase the trends of uh, voting by young people. But we also see <clears throat> knock-on effects, I suppose you'd say, amongst older people, uh, uh, including older, younger people, uh, to uh, get more engaged in political processes. Um, uh, so in Germany, for example, uh, uh, even parents get more excited, more interested uh, in uh, in uh, the political processes of uh, the, the electoral system uh, in consequence of uh, lowering the voting age in some of the states in Germany. So I think we're seeing, uh, I should say, there is a global campaign now underway, which broadly is branded, I suppose, as Make It 16, uh, with uh, dozens of countries and hundreds and thousands of young folk involved in the process of advocating for lowering the voting age in so many of these countries. So there's active uh, consideration of the issue, uh, and I think the evidence is good that this is good for democracy, it's good for young people, it's good for older people too. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, obviously, you know, if, if young people are coordinating a, a global campaign to lower the voting age, it seems like a bit of a, uh, a bit of a silly point to push to, uh, you know, hearing some counter arguments that young people might not be mature enough to make these decisions um, when, of course, first of all, young people are running these incredible campaigns and engaging in a whole lot of different strategic actions to have their political voices heard, but also um, that, you know, they are, have some serious concerns about the ways decisions are being made, excluding them. And as Judith mentioned earlier, you know, COVID management has been a, a massive one. You know, young people have really had to take a hit in terms of uh, being exposed to uh, the virus going back to school uh, without having uh, a meaningful say in, in, in those policies. Now, the uh, official campaign launch of Make It 16 was held at the Australian Parliament House on the 13th of June, and yet representatives of the Labour and Liberal parties were nowhere to be seen. So uh, could you comment on the reticence of the major parties to actively support this initiative? Judith, I might go to you first. Okay, we'll share this one. Um, I, I think that's a fascinating question uh, because this is uh, an opportunity uh, for Labor in particular because we've seen a general move away um, from coalition parties uh, generally, not just young people. Um, and, uh, you know, it would, Albanese says that he's interested in young people on the issues that young people face. Um, wasn't that long ago that the then leader, Bill Shorten, um, said that, you know, 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds, uh, they can drive and so on and so forth. They should be allowed to vote. Um, so it's something that's not new to Labor. And perhaps Labor needs to listen to their own steering advisory committee. They've got a young uh, steering advisory committee consisting of uh, 40 young people. So it's an opportunity um, for Labor. I'm not sure uh, about the Liberal National Coalition um, and 
why they weren't there. We can guess at that. But also, um, just recently, um, there's, in the UK, there's now draft la- uh, Labor policy to adopt the vote at 16. This has just happened. Um, and we're told that Labor in the UK don't fly kites on policy, usually. Um, and so if they have a draft version, they're likely to run with it. Um, so I think there are good reasons for sort of cautious optimism that, and it would be sort of amazing um, if the UK does go and might actually motivate Labor in Australia to um, get their act together. Mm. Sorry, Rob, I took up a lot of that time. No, go ahead, Rob. Uh, and I think the other thing to say is that it was it was significant, I suppose, in the short term that both Labor and the Liberal parties were not present at an event in which the Greens party were clearly taking a lead role in support of the proposal to lower the voting age. And I think the uh, current evidence is that Labor probably loathes the Greens more than they loathe the Liberal Party. But in both cases, those major parties are on a, uh, a bit of a hiding. If they don't uh, get their act together, the primary vote for both pa- the major parties is declining, and that's been a trend now in place for some time, not least all because of their, uh, their inertia or resistance to taking appropriate and urgent action on the climate catastrophe. So I think that it's in Labor's interest, certainly, to get on board with this one. And uh, I think, as Judith indicated, the the move by British Labor just in the last week to embrace the idea is possibly going to swing um, some of the more attentive Labor uh, members of the current government uh, to uh, a more positive view of the idea of lowering the voting age. Mm, Yeah, and I think that... um Putting that in an international perspective is really important as well, looking at how those moves might affect Labor's movements here. Uh, so I guess uh, coming up to, to ending our interview, uh, including young people in processes of formal political participation also opens up this question about improving uh, public political education for the Australian population in general. And Rob, as you mentioned, in other countries we've seen you know, parents, but also older young people uh, getting more involved as younger people are getting the vote. So what implications might lowering the voting age have for political literacy and participation overall in Australia? Um, Rob, I'll go to you first. Yeah, look, Priya, I think it means uh, in the long run, uh that uh, everyone's going to get a, a, a bigger buzz out of being engaged in and thinking about politics. I think young people have an awful lot to teach us, uh, and uh, I think the the uh, adultist or the age-based prejudice that's so long said, oh, kids don't know enough, uh, they're not mature enough, they don't have enough experience, is simply wrong. Uh, we've seen extraordinary instances of uh, moral clarity and leadership from 14- and 15-year-olds and it's about time uh, older Australians uh, woke up to the fact that they can learn a lot from, from these young people. Uh, and uh, it, it can only be a positive uh, uh, knock-on effect for uh, political engagement and political literacy in this country if we embrace the move to lower the voting age. Yeah, definitely. And Judith, was there anything else you wanted to add? No, I only to say that I was very happy to hear you say public education um, because I do think that uh, it is important for everybody to know and be informed and be motivated about what's happening um, uh, around the lo- uh, in our lives um, and not just young uh, people. Um, often when this issue comes up, people say, oh, young people don't have the confidence, they don't have the knowledge about it. Um, but that is not a criteria that you... Um, to apply to any other age categories to determine their eligibility. Um, but 
you know, I, I agree that political literacy is an important thing. We've got to have a population that's informed about the issues of the day. Yeah, absolutely, especially considering, you know, we have uh, mandatory voting and um, and, and yet uh, if, if there isn't sort of a robust political education and political literacy to kind of match that, then, um, you know, it's, it's quite difficult to, to, to see how people's actual interests will get um, appropriately represented. And, of course, you know, there are a whole lot of things around how partisan our media um, landscape can be, which which complicates this even further. So I think this is a really interesting uh, conversation, a really interesting thing to keep an eye on. And I just want to thank you both for making the time to speak with me today. Uh, and thank you. And thank you, Priya. Great. Thank you. And hope you have uh, you both have a wonderful day. And um, and that was Rob Watts and Judith Passant, both professors at RMIT's School of Global, Urban and Social Studies, who joined us to discuss the youth-led Make It 16 campaign to lower the voting age in Australia, which launched on the 13th of June at Parliament House in Canberra. Now, we are coming up to time um, at Thursday morning breakfast, and we want to remind people one more time to please donate to Radiothon. So you can call us at the station on 94198377 or head to 3cr.org.au to donate and we will catch you next week on Thursday Breakfast. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.